0: Filmmakers and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of George Romero, as recommended by Ali Croper of BitLip, a teen movie podcast. And in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Romero's 1973 film, Season of The Witch. Um, which, I'll be honest with you, was um, a film that I found quite interesting. Um, I, I don't know why I say to be honest with you, as though that might have been a, a surprise. A, an interesting but flawed film film, I think. Uh, It it sort of did remind me, and we Ali and I talked a little bit about this in the intro episode, it did actually kind of remind me a little bit about, or a little bit about, a little bit of um, Romero's later film, I think it was from 77, uh, Martin, a a kind of ambiguous um, vampire film, is the kid a vampire, is he not? Um, But it reminded me of Martin in the sense of sort of, not just how it was a low-budget, kind of really purposely dingy gritty kind of feeling film, but it also both films kind of hint towards or or, or speak to a, a sort of transitional period uh, that Romero is exploring. And and in Martin, it's kind of a transitional period of sort of um, the city of Pittsburgh and how the city itself is changing and how the attitudes, um, you know, there's kind of an old world and a new world attitude kind of at odds with each other in this one. And, and in uh, Season of the Witch, it's, it's much more sort of a... a a social and a socio-political kind of thing you know the, the feminist movement and the identity of, of women and, and how that um, how their position and their identity and their mentality is is changing um, but what, at least when it comes to the the low budget greatness of it that's where it's kind of flawed and, and, and it, it the production itself kind of being flawed has sort of a ripple effect on the film thematically and and emotionally a bit as, as well. I mean, the, the film is quite um, choppy. Uh, it looks kind of cheap, and it's it's really not very subtle with its seams. But I, I'm I'm prepared a bit to sort of write off, not write off, but to attribute the the choppy and the, and the messiness of it to the fact that it it is from what I understand, sort of a a little bit of a troubled production and um, a, a little bit of a. Weird um, distribution story as well. Um, it, it was strange because I remember looking looking the movie up and then talking to Ali about like, oh my god, IMDb says that this movie is two hours and ten minutes long, and so I settled in to watch it, kind of prepared for this two hour. Um, drama horror not really sure what to expect and then sat down to rent it on, uh, or watch it on Amazon and saw that it was a, a hair under an hour and a half an hour and 29 minutes I believe it, it actually clocks in at um and if you are um going to watch this or you uh, want to re-watch it Heads up that the Amazon version that you're going to get for free is only an hour and 29 minutes Um, And I preface that just because that's not how the film was originally made Um, When it was originally kind of made I believe Romero made a version that was about 130 minutes long So it was that initial two hours and ten minutes But uh, distributors found it, quote, too wordy, (laughs) so they wanted to cut it down. So before its release, it was cut down from 2 hours and 10 minutes to 89 minutes. Um, It was retitled uh, Hungry Wives, with an exclamation point, Um, and also labeled as a softcore pornographic movie, which is a bit strange because there's, um, I guess, some shots of breasts in this movie, but certainly nothing that would come across as titillating or um, evocative or, or certainly nothing that could be even borderline construed as pornographic, um, and, uh, and then later on, um, Anchor Bay, uh, in 2005 released a version that was an extended cut of about 104 minutes, so somewhere out there in the ether exists three different cuts of this movie, Season of the Witch, Hungry Wives, or, uh, Jack's Wife, uh, if you want to call it that, Jack's Wife was the uh, original name of the movie before it became, um, Season of the Witch, and then before that, and then after that became Hungry Wives. um, so somewhere out there exists these three different versions, but the one that we have and the one that I'll be talking about is the 89-minute version, which is available on Amazon, and which is the one that, um, by all accounts, is not the one that Romero wanted to show, um, but is the one that we got. And also, in, in the middle of production, I believe his budget was cut from something like $250,000 to $100,000. Um, so it, it, it's it's not... Uh, the version of the film that we're seeing is... is Probably not the version of the film that Romero would have wanted us to see. Um, It's in all likelihood with his passing and and with, uh, you know, sort of how things just go in the business. uh, This is probably um, the only... Or or we're never going to get to see that two hours and ten minutes version. Um, But to be honest with you, I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, I, I thought the film the you know was largely kind of effective and 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 did what it was trying to do um quite well uh but certainly did suffer from you know being cut down and being kind of choppy and being sort of um low budget if you will There, there are there are sort of parts that feel that feel very like i said on the nose and very kind of student film in a way which is in a way kind of charming and sort of works, which I realize this is a bit contradictory that I'm saying, like, here's a problem with the film, and yet because of this problem, it is still effective that it doesn't entirely make sense in my mind. So hopefully as I'm going through this episode, I can kind of um talk through it. But despite the flaws of this film, there is an interesting feminist film under underneath it all. One that is um, sort of an ex- an existential horror, but certainly not a visceral horror, in fact, Thinking about, it, I don't even know if it's a horror film at all. I believe Romero didn't consider it to be a horror film. It really kind of seems like it's actually more of um of a terror film, which <laughs> maybe a little bit of a pretentious phrase, but it, it, more like a terror film about a woman's identity and sort of the course of her life. Um, there are scenes and shots sort of that kind of do evoke fear. I'm thinking of of the the nightmares or the visions that um, Joan has uh, from this invader, which is breaking into her house. Like those are, there are some shots there. Where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of getting chills. From here, but there's really nothing that is meant to sort of scare you in the sense of jump scares or gross you out or anything. But you are sort of, I, I think you are very much supposed to feel on edge and uneasy and just off put by <clears throat> the life that Joan is leading, not by choice, but because of sort of the oppressive and just kind of not even oppressive but like the suffocating boring mundane nature of the life that she um is living and and it, it's and uh you do get the sense as the film goes along you kind of like yeah i i can understand why she chooses witchcraft to alter her life i can understand how she would arrive at that point because of everything that she is going through but then of course the big thing about the film the big question of the film is like but did she actually, or not she did choose witchcraft, but is witchcraft the thing which is influencing, uh, the, the, uh, the world around her? Is that, which is it, that force which is bringing upon the change or is it really just her choosing to have some agency in her life, which is, um, the thing which is resulting in the changes in her standing up for herself and her ultimately killing her husband and her ultimately having sex with Greg. Um, <clears throat> and it, it's sort of like... Uh, but, you know, at the end, it's sort of like it doesn't really matter if it was the witchcraft or not. It You know, it, it may be sort of a MacGuffin, but it was the thing that ultimately got her to achieve the things that she wanted to have. She ultimately turned her life into something that she wanted it to look like because of this decision that she made. Now, whether it was witchcraft, magic or not, kind of doesn't really matter. Um, and, um... The, the, as I said, the reason that this... Not even that the ambiguity works, um, but the the reason that, like I said, that we kind of do buy into the fact that we could believe that she would choose witchcraft, that she would choose this sort of stigmatized, shunned, dark, mysterious path for her life, does work be- so well because of how, like I said, how monotonous and sort of uninspired Romero displays her life to be, in, and how... Um, he weaves in uh, quite early on this thread of the power of suggestion um, and just this idea of like if you believe in something enough, it will occur. I mean, basically, you know, the placebo effect for, you know, changing your life. And um, of course, we see this for the first time in that big pivotal scene with, uh, you know, where we meet Greg for, well, where we actually meet Greg for the first time. We, of course, see him in a. A nightmare or a vision that she has early on but when we first meet Greg is during sort of that party and um where he just through the power of suggestion convinces not just convinces Shirley that she is smoking pot but then also where she starts physically reacting as though she is high as though she is loopy and she has this really kind of emotional breakdown where she confesses um to kind of how unhappy she is with her life because she believes that she is high and and joan is very upset at greg because of this cruel trick that he's that she uh he is playing on her and he doesn't really see it as a trick at all he just kind of sees it as um sort of a a, a not even status quo but this is just it, it just is in a way he's actually he's not cold about it but he doesn't really have an emotional attachment to it like joan does um and so we see this this home life in which Joan just is a housewife and one and she's not even really appreciated like her even her best friend Shirley kind of yells at her like you know what would you know about it you know you who has experienced nothing what would you know about this you know even when she's trying to be supportive of her friend who just had a breakdown she even gets yelled at and her her daughter doesn't care about her at all her daughter actually runs away you know partway through the film and a husband who um Played by a, a guy named Bill Thir- uh, Bill Thun- Bill Thunhurst, sorry, um, who, as far as I can tell, his only other credited role is in Romero's The Crazies, um, who, he does such a good job kind of talking past his wife. There is a scene where he hits her a couple times, and, it, you know, it, it's not played up strongly, you know, the, it, we are, well, we do feel why this is a significant moment in her life, but, um, it's just kind of matter of fact like of course this guy did this to her and not in the sense of like we certainly judge him for it because this is jones film and this is jones story um, but even that is just sort of like a at least establishing his pattern of behavior like of course this is something he did this is a, a shitty guy he's not um, an alcoholic you know he doesn't beat her all the time him hitting her is not something which is a regular occurrence but it just kind of seems based on how we've established him early of just kind of talking through her talking past her when he's doing sit-ups on the floor just go back to sleep he's telling her you know just kind of go back to sleep and it's not even advice that he's giving her because he cares it's just like a cold obligatory um, feel to the words that he is telling her that it is like kind of her duty to do these things because he is the husband and even how he keeps threatening different people. Um, the random guy on the phone, her, uh, the daughter, he just keeps saying, I'm going to kick it. I'm going to kick your ass. Like there's just this, this pervasive feeling of this guy who is in control, uncaring, and just kind of controls his family with like sort of an iron grip, very much like a, a a very old school conservative nuclear family from what you see as the 1950s. The man works and is the primary breadwinner and the woman's job is to stay at home and and be the homemaker and, and take care of all that kind of stuff. and she can't even do that very well. Um, we uh, you know it's not that she's a bad person. It's not that she's bad at what she does. Um, She clearly cares about her daughter. She clearly cares about her friend. She cares and she wants to be more than what she is. And she has that fear, that vision at the very beginning of just kind of growing old and decaying. And these visions, that, uh, these nightmares that she has, you know, starting off with the first one, which is like an eight-minute long one of just kind of her walking behind her husband who's just walking forward, reading a newspaper, not paying attention. And he's pushing branches out of his way but that are coming back and smacking her in the face. And, I mean, these are all very on the nose and they're very blatant we get what he is doing um but the the reason that i think that works despite the fact that it is very film school with the, you know the, the the baby on the ground and they walk past uh, that they walk past and then they get to the to house and he has he puts a collar on her and then on a leash and puts her in a dog pen like i get it we get the metaphors yes yeah, she is she is trapped she is basically a slave She is a dog to her husband um but then also when that vision extends it gets into kind of this um surreal dreamlike uh i don't know this this film does a good job of of kind of depicting dream logic in the sense of um just the the next you know the next shot is all of a sudden she's sort of in this house taking a tour of a house that she has and yet we are she's being told about it as though this is the first time she's ever here and like she goes into the next room and there's all of her friends who are playing this card game shot in this disorienting kind of wide angle lens then all of a sudden the door is open and here's the handyman and he's smiling and then it just kind of moves on and like nothing is given too much um attention or focus they just these weird things just sort of are they just are the nature of this dream and I think that that sort of is how dream logic is where it's you don't focus too much on one strange element or one character or one location. Just kind of it moves like from this room to the next room and here's this weird thing and here's these people and here's that. And it's just like all of this just sort of is. This is the nature of the dream. This is what makes up the dream. And and that was very interesting to me. But then, of course, that's the first time we quote unquote meet Greg is he's the handyman in this nightmare and this vision. And then they meet then, for the first time in real life during the party. And what was interesting when I was watching that in real time, it was sort of thinking like, oh, okay, is there something to this witchcraft thing? Was this vision prophetic? Um, was there some sort of, uh, you know, unknown prognostication? Sort of plants that seed of maybe there's something real about this witchcraft thing. But then once again, getting back to what Greg's, uh, you know, saying about the power of suggestion and just of thinking something, um, you know, Nikki probably, you know, Nikki, her daughter, probably could have talked about this character before. Maybe she um, just sort of dreamed about this character, Greg, of just kind of this this figure of a young, handsome man that she wants to have sex with, that she desires. Not specifically Greg, but just someone who is not her husband. And then she sees this Greg character, and she thinks, oh, my God, this is what I predicted, or this is what I prophesied. But really, it's just sort of the... Sort of the um, um, the, the self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like there was someone that she had wanted to be with, there was someone that she had desired, there was sort of this mold of this person, it just so happened that Greg fit perfectly into that mold, and then sure, she does these spells later on, she buys all the ingredients, and she, you know, does and she has this, the ceremony, she says the words, and she calls for Greg to come to her, um, and then she sits there, and she waits, and Greg does eventually come to her, But it's only after she calls him and invites him over explicitly. And, you know, sure, she could point to that as saying, like, well, see, he came to me after I called him and after I I cited, after I spoke the spell and after I said the words. Sure, but, you know, once again, self-fulfilling prophecy. That seems like a measure of success because you said the words, but chances are if she hadn't said the words, if she hadn't done that spell, Greg still would have come over and have sex with her. And so it is this thing where it's sort of, um, Romero does a wonderful job of, of sort of, um, uh, you know, of of having both, you know, of having this sense of, you know, here's what I said is going to happen, and here's what happens, and he just kind of observes it happening. There's no real judgment or, or one, or, 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 you know, a, a clear kind of shot or sequence or anything which would clue you in as to, yeah, Romero saying it was witchcraft, or no, Romero saying it's not witchcraft. It just kind of is, and we just kind of have to sit there and believe one thing or the other. Um, I, for one, choose to believe that it was not witchcraft at all. That it really was just a a, a reason for a woman to take control of her life and to take in to finally have agency and to do something about it. Um, and even the very last, uh, you know, even the very last sequence um, of her husband arriving back from a long trip to work. And it's nighttime outside, and he's coming through that same entrance um, where she keeps seeing that demonic or satanic, you know, um, lurker trying to break into the house. You know, he goes to the door, and she's prepared this time, and she shoots him um, as she couldn't do in the dream. That's up for question too. Did she did she know it was her husband? Did she think it was just a a, a real life um, projection or fruition of this dream that she had? It could be either because Romero has 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 planted the seeds for both to be possible. Um, for you to interpret, you know, yes, she was finally sick of her husband and didn't want to do anything about it, or no, she was so terrified at the fact that um, this dream was coming true and that she was so into this religion of witchcraft now that she was finally doing what she couldn't do in the dream, that she is... Um, you know, finally, you know, uh, that she that she's basically, um, some of my words here, that she is um, making sure that dream, that nightmare doesn't come true. Just like the dreams and nightmare she had at the very beginning, she is doing everything she can in her power to make sure that those dreams are no longer prophetic, that this is not what is happening, that she is taking control. Either way, that's what makes that last moment so powerful, is no matter what, whether it is or is witchcraft, whether it's real or whether it's fake, she is doing what she wants to do what she feels she needs to do to take control of her life and so those two-thirds like finally kind of come together at the end and I think it's so it's so effective and it's so very powerful and you do have the voiceover at the end of just kind of a, I don't know whether it's supposed to be police or paramedics who basically saying like eh, you know it's probably just gonna be an accident like you know and she'll get away with it and then, so you, you kind of know no matter what happens we don't see what happens but we do get the impression that. Everything is going to be fine for her. Well, I guess we do see for because we see her at the end um, at the party and someone compliments her for looking so young, and she says, I'm a witch. Um, and what's kind of interesting is that with that ambiguity um, of, well, with, this, with the, the theme of ambiguity, basically, of um, what was it that inspired her to take control of her life? Um, and if it wasn't witchcraft um, is she still going to be, or is she still going to have a fulfilling life? And I asked that question because one of the very last lines of the film, I think it is the last line, is someone saying, oh, that's Jack's wife. Now, keep in mind, at this point, Jack is dead. Um, she is at a party, she is a witch, she feels good about herself, um, and yet someone still identifies her as Jack's wife, which, as you recall from the beginning of this episode, was the title that Romero originally intended for this film to be, Jack's wife. So despite what she's done, despite the journey that she's gone through, despite the self-discovery, despite taking control and taking agency within her life, she is still labeled as Jack's wife. She is still metaphorically on that, uh, on that leash, tied to that collar, Um, and there's even, I think if you wanted to see, you could even kind of see some cynicism in even the embrace of witchcraft, because at the, at the end when she is in that ceremony, she's being kind of, um, brought into the, into the coven, um, she's put on a leash. She has a rope tied around her neck and she's on all fours like a dog. And, and so there even could be this cynical question of like, but you know, now that she's done this, is she just being controlled by another force that is, larger than her? Did she go from being um, oppressed by a husband to uh, oppressed by this group of women, or this group of witches? Um, is she, Does she really have agency or is it just kind of moving from one system of control to another? Or you could see it as um, just a, how a woman who tries to rise up and take control of her life in a patriarchal patriarchal society is still going to be tied to that system, or there are still going to be people who are more comfortable labeling her as a possession, as something which affirms their story and their agenda and what they believe, just like we have this woman who, um, you know took control of her life and and had these things happen to her because of what she believed in because what she believed was that she casted spells and and that's what caused her to um to achieve what she always achieved. It's it's, it's wonderful. And actually now that I'm speaking through it and coming to these scenes I'm actually sort of appreciating this more and just kind of what Romero did with the ambiguity and how um how it, how it really speaks to um this time and this place and how society was changing and and really kind of seeing early on how um Romero as a progressive filmmaker was not just something that was reserved only for his uh living Dead films was not just for um you know uh you know that that didn't stop uh, at the you know once the credits rolled um in Night of the Living Dead in 1968 so um really quite wonderful um certainly something I would I would recommend that you check out again once again kind of choppy kind of rough um I don't know if it was uh... The the film itself, or maybe just the equipment, but I was watching it uh, on my old Roku and I had the, the remote control where you can plug the headphones in and the first, I don't know, 20-30 minutes, like, the audio kind of kept crackling and breaking up and I knew if, when I unplugged it, it sounded fine through the TV, so it was probably something that actually had to do with the hardware, but it was also, in, in a way, sort of <laughs> felt like it tied into... Um, just the aesthetic and the low-budget kind of grimy and gritty look of that. In a, in a way, like it, it didn't bother me that much because it's like, no, this kind of makes sense for the film that he's making here and for what he's putting out. Um, but certainly, uh, like I said, not the film that I think he necessarily wanted us to see. Um, but unfortunately, at this point, um, unless you actually buy the... Anchor Bay uh, Blu-ray or DVD is the film that we are going to see. And um, as I mentioned at the top, it is available for free if you have a Prime subscription. Um, If not, it is available for rental or purchase on iTunes. Um, And those are the only two places you can get it. So um, that does it for my episode on Season of the Witch or Jack's Wife or Hungry Wives, whatever it is you want to call it. But this episode is definitely on Season of the Witch. Um, If you want to... um, Chime in um as to this episode, as to the introduction to George Romero episode. As to anything really, it's easy enough to email me at you movies at gmail.com, follow me on Twitter at nolan His Teeth. Uh be sure to catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly both on IDOMoviesbadly dot or go to battleshipretention.com Find I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop-down menu, and feel free to add some uh, comments on this episode, other episodes, all the episodes. Do whatever you want. And you can also find me on iTunes. Uh, leave me some ratings there and wherever else you might get uh, your favorite podcast. So um, thanks for listening, everyone, and thank you for all of your patience during the long delay. I initially, as I said, just intended to take off in uh, only March and come back in April, but because of technical difficulties and scheduling difficulties had to take off for April instead, so I appreciate you sticking with me, I appreciate you coming back and listening, Um, and be sure to uh, keep listening, not just through May, but through June, Uh, we got some exciting stuff lined up, so uh, for once in, I think, the history of this podcast, I have more than a month of upcoming episodes planned out, which is quite exciting, but of course, um, first you have to tune in uh, next week, Uh, where I will be covering um, George Romero's Monkey Shines, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant.